Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. It's Oscar nominations day. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And Richard Lawson. Hello. Um, it's fun day. And a fun day. Oh, yeah, fun group of nominations. I feel excited by the Oscar nominations in a way that I think is often countered with um with shame and guilt. Um, but we'll get there. Wait, are we here to talk about the I thought we were here to talk about the Snyder Cut. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah. that's the that's the Snyder Cut cast that's uh, that we're recording after this. Right. Picture, so uh, everyone <laughs> oh, can look sorry. for Oh, sorry. Okay, um, just got my schedule It's actually mixed a, up. a 4-hour podcast series for every minute of the <laughs> oh. uh, of the Snyder oh. Cut. Lots of slow motion. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been a weirdly busy period with the Grammys and then the Oscar nominations and the Snyder Cut. Three wild worlds of pop culture coming together. But yeah, we're here to talk about the Oscar nominations uh, because, of course, we are. And before we dive into them, honestly, I thought that your questions that you guys have been sending us via subtext, which we talk about all the time, but really is such a great way for us to hear from you directly. Go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen to sign up. Um, I thought we would just go through some of your questions, which I think are um, what a lot of people have on your minds. And I wanted to start with one from Megan McLeod, who says, my oh my, is this the least cringy best picture shortlist this century? And maybe, yeah. Well, yeah, I've seen a lot of sentiment that like there's not really a stinker um, in the bunch, you know, mm-hmm. which obviously this is all subjective. Maybe people have loved every movie that's been nominated in years past, but there's not, you know, a Bohemian Rhapsody or mm-hmm. I guess to some a Joker who people thought, you know, was really, really bad or extremely that incredibly close. I keep bringing that movie up. <laughs> um, so, yes, by that metric. This was pretty solid. And I, you know, I was texting with some friends who follow movies, but aren't like in our field. And they were like, is it just me or is it, does it feel like these are all like real movies that this really wild, unpredictable, truncated, strange year didn't actually, you know, this feels as robust as it would had the pandemic not happened. Yes. Even though it includes titles like The Father and Sound of Metal, maybe, or maybe even Promising Young Woman, that you can imagine not having gone as much the distance if the pandemic hadn't happened, but that doesn't make them any less worthy. But they might have, too. I mean, you know, yeah. I think in the case of something like Sound of Metal, <laughs> like that... I'm so sorry, Richard. You're stepping on a like a mini argument that Katie and I had before we started recording this morning, where I was, I was, you're on my side basically. So that was a little, <laughs> a little a chuckle of victory. I'm sorry. Please go ahead. No, I mean, I just, I, I think that you know, yes, it doesn't always happen, but there have been stories in the last, I don't know how many years, where something quote unquote smaller or more off the beaten path kind of worked its way into best picture. I mean, I think that like weirdly, despite very much differences in like box office gross, something like Hell or High Water, which is, you know, not a typical Oscar movie getting in or something even like Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. uh, which maybe is more formally Oscar friendly, but was a little indie that was at a festival and just had this really great word of mouth having not gotten like a rapturous response when it first premiered. Yeah. I want to speak up for the dozens of us who are still pretty, dozens of us, Mm -hmm. I tell you, who are still pretty 
cold on Mank, despite... So Mank walks away with the most nominations. Uh, as Katie pointed out to me earlier this morning, you know, a, a big chunk of that, of course, is technical nominations. But I've been hesitant to be as fully honest as I want to be about how cold Mank left me, because the last time I was honest about how I felt about an auteur-driven uh, film on Netflix, it, it got me in a lot of trouble <laughs> with the... Uh, Film Twitter. The Irishman uh, wars were so brutal. And and for what? <laughs> but this morning, a white man, Matt Seller Sites, tweeted about how much he didn't like Mank, so I feel like I have some cover here. Um, which is a sad state of affairs. But but yeah, I Mank I, I am totally down with all of its technical nominations and Amanda Seyfried also I've said from the start I really liked her performance but Gary Oldman and Mank as a whole uh, both left me pretty meh and so the fact that like Mank is walking away with like that big headline whether or not it picks up all the wins um, is the only thing that I would say to counter your narrative of like all these films are super great you know so that's where I am yeah uh, yeah, we got a um, a text, speaking of Amanda Seyfried, um, if we're talking about Meg, from uh, Amy Wirtz asking if she can sneak out a supporting actress win at this point. Because she was someone we had discussed, like, maybe missing entirely because she missed it on the SAG nomination. And um, the supporting actress category was one that I was kind of betting on being really weird. And then it was normal. It was, like, somewhat what we expected, um, even though there were some surprises in other categories. Um, so I'm still feeling high on Amanda. And I do think Mank may well win a bunch of those technical categories. So it might be like, it might win the most Oscars of any of them in the end, which feels very strange given how it's kind of a muted presence in there. Um, but it's such a big movie, it feels kind of hard to avoid. Yeah. And, a mo- and a movie about filmmaking, which historically, you know, is something that the Academy really enjoys. But, you know, yeah. It's a movie about filmmaking. I think it is critical of, you know, some of the legendary luminaries of For the sure. field. I mean, I think, you know, I, particularly its portrayal of Irving Thalberg, which is for whom the biggest honorary award of the Oscars is named. So it, it might indicate at least, yes, it is following a pr- familiar pattern of, of how, you know, movies about movies getting big Oscar attention. But at least it's like a little bit critical of a legacy of Hollywood kind of being in bad league with bad politics. Yeah, it's not the um, artist. Behind the scenes. Yeah. It is not the artist, which Matt Zolorsai said is better than Mank. I don't know. <laughs> you know why? Because I have never seen the artist. <laughs> um, well, sticking with Best Picture for a little bit longer, I mean, I think if you are maybe someone who listens to this podcast but hasn't been following obsessively, The Father might be the one on this list that you'd stick out and you'd be like, wait a second, what is that? And it is, as we've discussed, like it's from Sony Pictures Classics. It's not on streaming yet. I think it is the only movie on this lineup that is not, so it's hard for people to see. But we got a, a text from Tom B who says, looks like a I'll have to watch The Father after all. Can you convince me that it's not the sequel to The Wife? And it is not. I really feel like I need to go on a campaign to tell people to watch The Father because it's really good. It really deserved its editing and production design nominations in addition to Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman. I was thrilled to see how well it did. The editing and production design nominations definitely are a testament to those branches, like knowing their, I mean, I mean, they know way more than I do, but like, I, it just feels like there, that's like a kind of pay attention to what's being done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a movie set in one apartment, like pretty much how intricate can it be? But actually the production design and the editing are so central to how that film is read. I mean, mm-hmm. it, to it's like grammar as a movie um, that, yeah, it, it stands out in that way. If you're really looking at it more than, you know, the typical big spectacular sort of period PC kind of thing does at least in production design. Yeah. With with that Hopkins nomination, I'm going to go ahead and give uh, Richard full credit for his 
prediction. Yeah. (laughs) I certainly didn't see it getting all the other nominations. You know, I kind of thought it would be one of those, you know, uh, what's the um, the Jana McTeer movie? Like a little movie that gets one big British actor a nomination, you know, (laughs) Uh, Peter O'Toole in Venus, you know, Uh, or the the one with the last station with uh, Helen Mirren and Christopher Palmer, you know, like, um, but I'm so I'm glad that like that a really not only well acted, but technically assured movie um, is being recognized. And it feels like the father, well, which isn't really like available for people to watch other than awards voters. It will be um, by March 26th, I think. So before the Oscars. Yeah. So people can see it before the Oscars um, if you're a completist. Um, But yeah, I think the big story with Best Picture to kind of circle back to this question is not necessarily any griping about what's on the list, but what isn't. Yes. And you know, I had predicted for our predictions that went up uh, at the end of last week that there would be a 10 picture field this year. It hasn't I don't think it's happened yet no. since they've in- instituted the new rules because it requires a certain amount of percentage of votes. It's kind of very complicated. So maybe it's kind of almost impossible numerically for 10 to happen. But I just thought in this kind of scattered, strange year that it could. But what got left out of my predictions were One Night in Miami. Uh, and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, yeah. which notably are two films directed by black people about black experience in this country. And while there is much other stuff to celebrate in, uh, on, the, on the diversity front in this list of nominees, that is pretty glaring, as is an omissions in Best Director. Yeah. Something I thought that an interesting stat that I saw uh, this morning was that in the nomination for Judas and the Black Messiah uh, is the first time an all black producing team have been nominated. So we've seen like black led films nominated before in best picture, but usually, you know, there's at least a few white people who are behind it. And this is like, you know, I thought that was a really interesting uh, comment. So, yeah, Uh, no, the, I mean, we've talked about the impact that the past year is going to have on this race so many times in the pandemic. And then also the protests around George Floyd's death. And we had this really huge crop of films about black people with black actors, black directors, that are represented in these nominations. You know, you've got Judas and the Black Messiah and Best Picture. You've got uh, Daniel Kaluuya and Lakey Stanfield uh, and Leslie Odom Jr., three black actors and supporting actor. There's record diversity in the Best Actor field. There's a lot to be celebrated there. Um, I don't know what to make of One Night Miami and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom both being left out. Um, we got a text from Henry Highstand who basically said those snubs are not a good look on the Academy and it's an argument for having the solid list of 10, um, which is something that I think I've said a few times. I wouldn't mind it just being 10 every time. And then some other people were asking, like, what happened to Regina King's momentum? I think we thought she was a best director contender for One Night in Miami until today, maybe. Yeah, I mean, what happened was Thomas Vinterberg, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the in, uh, de- the uh, default uh, Oscar Best Director Euro swing that they do every year now. Yeah, like, what was it, Pavel Pavlovsky, yeah. right, for um And uh, Michael, Ida, Michael Haneke for, um, for more. There's a couple other recent ones. But more got Best Picture. Yeah, I think, I think there would be more of a furor over this, not that there shouldn't be, uh, you know, if we didn't have a historic number of women in the best directing category, I don't want to sound like I'm defensive of the Academy cause I'm not, but like if we didn't have a historic number of, uh, women in the, in the best directing category too. Um, and if it had been, um, Sorkin over Vinterberg, I think we would be having a different conversation today mm-hmm. and even an even sort of frostier conversation. Another round is really good and Vinterberg's direction is really good in it. And I'm not saying that means it should like uh, replace Regina King's good work. Something that I think we talked about though with Regina King 
is it felt like One Night in Miami, since it is a, an adaptation of a of a play, it felt like it was more of like an actor's director uh, film than it was a sort of splashy director's film. And not to say that the branch is incapable of, uh, you know, acknowledging an actor's director, but I think sometimes that can be a person who is overlooked in this category. Does that make sense? Well, in the same way that George C. Wolfe wasn't even really in the conversation for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the performances certainly were uh, Mm -hmm. and are continuing. Um, But yeah, like there is maybe from certain vantage points, something static about that direction on screen. It was not static on set, I'm sure, in terms of how King and Wolf worked with actors, but um, it doesn't necessarily translate to a cinematic experience in the same way. Not in a lesser sense, but just not in the same way that like another round, Vinterberg's work another round, which is wonderful with actors, but also has this kind of very kinetic verve to it yeah, and, yeah. and 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 you know, and frankly a kind of originality. Like it it's it's a story that I haven't seen before, uh, about aging in a way I haven't seen before. And he's been around for a long time. Like, he's been a respected international director for a while. So, you know, I think there's a sense that, like, Regina King has obviously made a huge mark for herself as a director, but she's only just getting started. Like, there will be hopefully many opportunities to reward her in the future. And then, but you, like, compare it to Emerald Fennell, who is also an actor turned director and mm-hmm. promising young woman just has, like, kind of vision top to bottom. Like, whether or not you're a huge fan of the movie, it's hard to, like, not see her acting behind the camera at every possible moment, which I think is what made her a more likely nominee there. Also multi-hyphenate, right? That's always a... Yeah. Is she not? Yeah, no, she, she's nominated for producing and for directing uh, promising, promising Young Woman. So that's three nominations for Emerald Fennell, which is really something. The, the interesting thing with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is that, like, y- you know, we, are, we have all been assuming for a very long time that it is going to pick up one award for certain for Chadwick Boseman. Yes. Um, and Viola Davis is also nominated here. But like, what's interesting is that I feel like that film felt like it disappeared from the conversation other than those two performances. As soon as it arrived, someone was saying that they couldn't even find it on Netflix like the week after. Or no, no, they found it in like the hidden gems section of Netflix what? the week after it premiered. And they're like, that's that's your own movie, Netflix. That's, that's a <laughs> self-own. Yeah, if anyone's hiding it, it's you. So I don't know what... I don't know what to say about what's happened with Ma Rainey, but like as a film, it feels like it completely dissolved even while the Chadwick and Viola narratives were so strong. Do you know? Well, I think those narratives spoke for a lot. And I think, you know, like Glenn Turman got a supporting actor win at Los Angeles Film Critics. He got cited at National Society. But I think that that honestly, without knowing the ins and outs of their campaign strategies, like that does speak to a Netflix thing. Yeah, it does make some sense that like that movie with these two central performances, one of which is like posthumous sort of, you know, extraordinary thing that that would take up a lot of the oxygen. Yeah. But that didn't take up oxygen. I mean, in in different circumstances for other movies, you know, other movies had a more sort of holistic array of nominations. So there still might be, you know, some more uh, troublesome problems underlying um, Ma Rainey not showing up uh, in as many categories as other films. Completely. The Netflix thing feels like a big question to kind of ponder as as they continue going forward. They had the most films. They probably spent the most money. It certainly feels like it based on what came to my house. They got a lot of nominations. I mean, getting Mank and Chicago 7, both in the Best Picture lineup, is a great look for them. Mank got the most nominations, as we discussed. But I think, once again, they're not going to win Best Picture. And I think, other than Chadwick Boseman, like, that might be their only big 
category win at all. Um, and you have to wonder, like, how far you can go, even if you have all the money in the world and all the talent in the world. Like, there's so many X factors in the Oscars that that can't overcome. And you want to wonder what happened with Defy Bloods, which is, um, well, you know. that that's, yeah, I mean, that's a big omission uh, in I, a lot of yeah, different categories. I, I want to talk again about, the, like, okay, so... So one one thing I was a little worried was going to happen. Um, I I want this Oscar ceremony to honor Chadwick Boseman, and I have no doubt that it will. And I was a little worried that he was going to be double nominated, which to me felt like a little unnecessary, given that he's like sure to win the top prize. So let another actor come into the best. And that didn't happen. You know what I mean? We've got yeah. this really interesting supporting actor category, which we're going to talk about for sure. Yeah. Um, but the Delroy Lindo narrative makes me really sad. As 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 ready as I am to honor Chadwick Boseman, I think Delroy Lindo is so phenomenal in that film. And everything he said about that film since has been so engrossing for me to hear. And so I just I I wanted more for him this this season. So that's where I am with that. Especially when you have Oldman in Mank nominated where that's just kind of like all right he just won yeah this is like a weird performance where he's playing 25 years younger than he is not very successfully you know i think he's fine in the movie i don't think he's the interesting thing about the movie at all right um whereas del rilindo is like the beating heart of a movie that i don't even really like the five bloods that much because it's just not like some of its style choices don't sync up with like what I'm, you know, looking at or looking for rather. Um, but like, he's undeniable in that movie and, and it's, he's been such a wonderful kind of journeyman actor for so many years that it felt like uh, a great way to honor him and honor a film that a lot of people adore. And, um, uh, including my fellow members of the New York film critic circle where it won, won a bunch of awards. So yeah, that feels like a missed opportunity and in in exchange for just doing kind of more of the same, which is like, oh, he's in a period piece playing a, a famous person uh, and it's about movies. Here you go. Here's a nomination. Can I offer a ray of hope uh, in the form of Steven Yeun, who we talked about last week as how oh, sad yes. he would be if he got blanked again after having been so great in Burning and we, we kind of felt like he was moving on up. It does feel like maybe Delroy Lindo into Five Bloods can be the Steven Yeun of Burning of the future. <laughs> My metaphor is falling hope. apart. But yes, the kind of thing that really gets everyone to pay attention to him after so many years of doing great work. And then he pops back up and gets a nomination. And uh, speaking of which, hooray, Steven Yeun got nominated for Minari. Steven and Riz, I'm over the moon. Yeah. I, uh, like, all I want in the world for that category was both of those men to be in there, and they are. And that makes me really... I mean, I assumed Chadwick would be in there. And then, bar, you know, beyond that, I was like, Steven and Riz, both, please. And they are. So I'm so happy. Yeah, so when... Um Emily Bergquist texted, um, how happy is Joanna? Question mark, question mark, exclamation mark. Um, while also asking a question that a lot of people asked, which is about Judas and the Black Messiah. Should we should we get into the double supporting actor noms there? Yeah. Yes. I mean, it is completely wild that that happened. Like, I feel like I cannot overstate how crazy it is to have a two lead movie in which both leads are nominated in the supporting category, leaving it with no leads whatsoever. So, okay, can I share with the audience sort of what uh, the audience, our (laughs) listeners, um, you know, trying to drill down on, on how a category flips this way? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, most of you listening probably already know this, but I just wanted to make sure I had all my ducks in a row for this. So the idea is for Juice and the Black Messiah, Warner Brothers makes a decision to campaign Daniel in supporting, Daniel Kaluuya in supporting, and Lakeith in lead. 
in the interest of not splitting the vote in the yeah. same category, right? which is very frequent, uh, common, tactic, very yeah. common. Yeah. Very common. Uh, very smart. Actually, uh, we could fuss about category fraud and, and, and category fraud feels particularly fussworthy when two, when both of them are in supporting, <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, uh, splitting the campaigns that way is, is the studio's decision. But ultimately, it's up to the acting branch uh, in the Academy when they're when they're making the nominations to decide where they feel like that actor belongs. And not only that. And and so, like, my understanding is if you're, uh, you know, if you're in the acting branch of the Academy and you are voting on the on the nominees, if you're nominating people, you get a list of qualified performers, but you don't get any sort of category. You don't get lead or supporting appended to their name. Yeah. Right. So you get you have a list. So you see Lakeith Stanfield and you see Daniel and you and and it says Jews the Black Messiah next to both of them. And it's up to you entirely where you put them. And not only that, but if they get votes in both categories, it's who whichever one they get the most qualifying votes in first. That's the category they stick in, which that's the really fascinating oh, part to me. First, that's interesting. Yeah. So the order in which they count, not the numbers. Yes, and so I don't know if that's the order in which they, the votes come in. I don't know the Price Waterhouse system for like, do they vote in order of received? So yeah. if you get, so if Lakeith got a flood of early votes in supporting, then he's just cemented in supporting, and no amount of lead. Uh, nominations was going to move that. So. Yeah. And people have brought up the Kate Winslet in the reader example a couple times as a comparison yeah. for this, where she was campaigned as a supporting actress. I think she won the Golden Globe in supporting uh, and then won, uh, was nominated for lead and won in, um, for best actress. Um, but the funny thing to me is that was the Academy being like, that's category fraud. Like, we, she's a lead actress. We're going to just give it, put her in the right category. But this was the opposite. It was putting both of them in the wrong category. I, that's what really sticks with me is how strange this is. Well, and the strange implication that, like, well, then who is the lead? And was there this kind of unconscious or, I don't know, maybe conscious bias of, like, these black actors, well, surely it's a, it's a supporting thing, right? You know, um, <laughs> meaning Jesse Plemons has to be the lead of Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, Martin Sheen. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's a little strange. I think, I think the, the unfortunate thing is that, you know, you talked about splitting the vote, Joanna, and I could really see that happening now. Okay, once again, you were on my team. <laughs> I told Katie this morning before we started recording that I was really worried that, like, Sasha Baron Cohen was going to win now, no offense to Sasha, if Daniel and Lakeith split the vote. And she was like, you're incorrect. So Richard, <laughs> said, Richard I'm not worried about it. <laughs> no one can be incorrect when predicting something that might happen in the future. But I think if you game out, like, where else Judas and the Black Messiah is nominated... Mm-hmm. It's probably not going to win in screenplay. Sure. It's probably not going to win in picture. And supporting actor for a while seemed like its best shot at getting on the Oscar stage or the Oscar union station or whatever, whatever is happening this, at this year's Oscars. And now that sort of urgency or that, you know, whatever voter kind of trend might split probably more for Kalia still but in two different directions, which could leave a hole, depending on how, you know, the votes go for someone else, which I could see grimly going to Sasha Baron Cohen, who I 
I'm on the record as saying is terrible in <laughs> Trials of Chicago 7. Here's what I think is going to happen. Not that I don't, don't think any of this is possible. I think Daniel Kaluuya is going to win the SAG in a walk, um, which is yeah. really the last awards show we have between now and the Oscars. And I think that's going to happen. We're going to see him give another great speech. And it's just going to be clear that that's where this is headed. The same as like when someone's nominated in multiple categories and they pick like which one to reward them for. Like if Chadwick Boseman had been nominated in both, I think he still would have won for uh, Marini, et cetera. I'm just saying that like... I was certain yesterday <laughs> that Daniel was going to win an Oscar, and now I'm less certain. That's sure. all I'm saying. Yeah, so, no, I yeah. think I think that is a completely reasonable um, thing to think about. So this, it. so the SAG Awards are on April fourth. Yeah, and then the Oscars are on the twenty. When are they? Twenty fifth. I, and I don't know, actually, off the top of my head when voting closes. I'm just like, this This season is so weird and wild that I'm just scared. I want Daniel Levis Oscar. That's all. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Diving back into subtext, maybe give us a chance to talk about some other um, categories. We got a text from Bobby Lauer. He said, the documentary branch never fails to surprise me. Such a deep slate and still rather shocked and more an audience pleaser like my octopus teacher made it over especially over Dick Johnson's Dead or Boy State. Welcome to Chechnya, Gunda, et cetera. Justin for Kirsten Johnston. I agree. Uh, Dick Johnson's Dead not making the cut was one of my biggest surprises. Like, I don't know how deep other people are in documentary to notice that, but that felt really weird. Also, justice for my beloved Boy State. Um, but the Obamas got their got another nomination here for Crip Camp, so maybe we can all rest easy on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't have the data in front of me, but it is interesting that My Octopus Teacher got nominated when it's, you know, obviously people like it. I did a, a Q&A thing for VF and Netflix about with the director of that film, um, along with some other documentary filmmakers, as did you, Katie. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's a nature movie, you know, and I think nature movies have a history at the Oscars, but like it's not a movie. I mean, they, there are environmental concerns in, at play in that film, but it's not a movie about like a capital I issue in the way that some of the other nominees are, or some of the films that weren't nominated were, I mean, Dick Johnson is dead is about death, but it's sort of sweet and poignant and not, you know, it's not about like the scourge of Alzheimer's treatment in care facilities or something, you know? Um, so I think it's, I don't know, it just kind of, it, uh, it feels like something of an outlier in recent years that a, a very earnest, straightforward, beautifully shot and, 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 you know, with all this underwater photography, uh, nature film, like my octopus teacher would get in there over something that can tick a few boxes of, of kind of the awareness, uh, quota. Yeah. The documentary branch is always just throwing weird stuff out there. Joanna, you understand the animation category better than I do. Did they did they go weird with animation, or is it pretty much what we expected? No, fully 100% what is expected. Okay. Uh, I haven't <laughs> seen the Shaun the Sheep movie. It's on Netflix, and it's it's cute, like all the Shaun the Sheep stuff. I, like, uh, So, you know, we were talking last week about our predictions that we were writing, and I had supporting actor sound and animation. And animation, like, when I was looking at the animation, it, everyone just felt very clear that the, those would be the five nominees and then it was like yep check 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 there we go and soul's gonna win it so the end yeah um much love to my beloved wolf walkers but um you know i think this is it what i thought was interesting i, I don't know if you guys get the like disney publicity patting themselves on the back about their awards as every studio does uh emails but they were calling this like you know first nominations for disney plus and i was like i guess 
You can call Soul and Onward and Mulan Disney Plus nominations. And I guess you can call the Billie Holiday film a Hulu nomination if you want. But like it's weird to call that Hulu, but not Nomadland Hulu, because Nomadland is also currently on Hulu. But very weird. Yeah, the the lines don't make any sense. And hopefully we can just go back to normal (laughs) pretty soon. Speaking of soul, if you were to go back in time to the days when you were, you know, just kind of a grungy teen smoking your clove cigarettes. I don't know if you, either of you were that, but like, <laughs> let's say I was. <laughs> and someone had said, if you, you, your older self came back and said, not only is the guy from Nine Inch Nails going to already have an Oscar, but he's going to get a <laughs> second nomination for writing music for a Disney movie. Mm-hmm. Would you have believed it? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, and he's like, like he and Atticus, Atticus Ross, who wrote the score for, for Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross for uh, Soul, like they could win. Yeah, Again. and they're and they're nominated for Mank as well. Yeah, the yeah. double nominated. So, yeah, which is funny because so they won for Social Network, and then I think they haven't been nominated since, right? I um, think that's right. But you know, they just won the Emmy this year for Watchmen. Like they're just you know, it's they're on a roll. Their stuff is so good. I know that it's fashionable not to to like think like, but there's other scores better than Soul, and like there are lo- lots of great scores out there. The Minari score is wonderful, uh, but I really like the Soul score, and I really want them to win. <laughs> I'm going to be fully on the bandwagon with that. I'm rooting for Minari, but um, the Soul score is really nice. Great score. Um, I had to do original song in our predictions, and I think I went four for five on all of my predictions, except for director where I really biffed it. But uh, I was so happy to see Husevik make it in there. It's the only song I care about. I don't know if it's going to win. I feel like Leslie Adam Jr. stands a really good chance as like the way to reward one night in Miami. Um, but I was, I was just glad it made the cut. All right, I'm going to jump back into subtext. Uh, We have a question from Amanda Iman. I try to watch every Oscar-nominated film each year, which, man, that is a process. I'm very bummed about having to see Hillbilly, Elegy, Mulan, and Pinocchio. If I could skip one, which would you recommend? I haven't seen Pinocchio, so maybe, I don't know. Maybe if I don't have to watch it, she doesn't either. But I feel like you can skip Mulan, right? You can skip Mulan, but it's more entertaining than Hillbilly Elegy. <laughs> yeah, it is. But if you're an Oscar person, like Glenn Close is probably going to win. Right? Well, I'm glad you brought because I think supporting actress is the is the hardest to call of that of the kind of quote unquote big categories. Yes, because yes, there is a case to be made for Glenn. There is a case to be made for Seyfried. There's a case to be made for Bakalova. And there's a case to be made for Yojong Young from Minari. Mm-hmm. I think Olivia Coleman's the only one among them who I don't see winning. But like all of the other the other four, you could kind of see it happen. I mean, I say Yun because Minari did so well yeah. In, yeah. in terms of nominations that that, you know, indicates a lot of broad support for the film among different branches of the Academy. So that could be a positive. Bakalova was riding a wave of a ton of awards. People love Borat. Um, it didn't. You know, it didn't get the uh, Best Picture nomination. I thought it might. But like it got into screenplay and, you know, and then she's mm-hmm. there. So. But yeah, I don't know. Glenn Close winning, I, I guess there might just be a sort of fatigue of like, okay, here you go. Like we, we yeah. not that they fucked it up when she lost for the wife because Coleman was a very deserving winner, but just like, let's get this kind of uh, monkey off our back about like the Glenn Close thing for Christ's sake. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I guess if you're an Oscar completist, it is worth watching that movie, but it's a bad movie and she is actively very bad in it. Um, you know, we were talking at the top of the show about like this being a sort of stinker free year, at least in best picture. Hillbilly Elegy getting any award nomination for anything by anyone uh, is bad. <laughs> it's not, it's not great. Yeah. 
I would prefer it to not be in there at all. But I think I'm with you that, like, can we get the like, Glenn Close needs an Oscar thing? And, like, let her win and then, like, maybe come back with something great and get nominated and win again if she wants to. Just, like, get this over with. Yeah, something great that's less predicated on, like, this could win an award. Yeah. You know, like, do something kind of weird. And, like, yeah, like, yeah. put her in the Eurovision sequel or something. There's so so many options. Put her in a Yorgos Lantimos movie. Oh, my God. Kind of a weird sense of cosmic, you know, completion. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is this what you need to win? Okay. Yeah. Move over, Olivia. Here I come. Um, you saying Olivia Coleman is the only one you think won't win the award is now having me, like... Wonder if she's going to win. Crossing well, the, what, yeah. what I've been thinking about is the year that Tilda Swinton won um, for Michael Clayton, which was like Amy Ryan, Ruby D, Saoirse Ronan, Tilda, and there was one other person I can't think of off the top of my head. But like everyone, like everyone won different awards. Like there was no clear consensus. Like it was Amy Ryan, then it was Ruby D, and then Tilda kind of swooped up out of nowhere and won. So I don't know, man. Something weird could still happen. Yeah, I mean, close is more the Ruby D there than the. The Tilda, certainly, yeah. Yes. Um, but that, like, Olivia Coleman being the Tilda yeah, who could just yeah, chump it in. Yeah. Uh, who I knows? Don't know. uh, so here's another text from Natalie Shepich. She just uh, said, Not a question, but it's thrilling to have two women nominated in director for the first time, and it's the first for two Asian directors, too. I feel like coverage is already ignoring that. Um, I think that's true. I mean, we talked a little bit about director and how if Aaron Sorkin had made it in, we might be rioting, but... The diversity in the director category, especially, which has been so white and male for so long, um, that really is a, a big step forward. I just think it's so interesting that, like, you know, this is this is like a really historic, uh, especially since we've been talking. I mean, Parasite obviously had a huge year last year, but we've been talking about this question of like nominating a film but not recognizing all the talent behind it, et cetera, or, or acting talent or what have you, and and. You know, the fact that like Minari is is so well represented and then you've got uh, Riz Ahmed also in, in the best actor category. And then the conversation on Twitter around it is about one The Hollywood Reporter headline written by an Asian woman using the phrase bamboo ceiling. And I'm like, can that not be the conversation today? Can we have the conversation about how this is great, you know, like, I don't know. I, that's, that's its own thing. Um, but like, I, I, I just think it's really interesting. I mean, like oftentimes as we started this out, we want, we want to be mindful of what's being represented. Often it, it, I find like it, it, I feel like it becomes like a, a tallying thing, like what was in, what was out sort of thing. But I'm just, I'm just really happy for Minari today and I'm really happy for Sound of Metal. So, you know. The Minari thing is so nice for the Chung's director nomination in particular, because that's not a flashy movie. You know, it, yeah. it doesn't kind of gesture toward its own direction. Not that these other ones do necessarily, but like it's so subtle and sweet and, and it's, it's a gently mounted film. And uh, for the director's branch to kind of see what the, the sort of work and passion that goes into something smaller um, than something that's very technically ambitious. I think is a really nice thing. And again, another indication that that movie has really resonated with um, Academy voters in a way that I once feared just a couple months ago it wouldn't. Can I point out an Oscar history stat that I love um, that's happened again? Uh, Leslie Adam Jr. has become yet another person to be nominated for uh, acting and uh, song in the same year. Uh, and Mary J. Blige from Usbound was the first. And ever since that happened, it's happened every year. I don't know why. That this oh. is the trend. I love this trend. Um, I'm all Make here more for more musicals. I, yeah, I guess. Although, have any <laughs> no, of them? I, I guess. I guess a Star Is Born would be the only one. Uh, that would qualify as a musical as well. Um, please make more musicals and put all of these people in musicals. But um, I just love this this little trend that we're on. 
Well, well and, and Odin Jr. is not the only one because Close is nominated for Me and Mama, <laughs> the, her original song. <laughs> Uh, I think Scott Tobias tweeted, like, in Letterman voice, Mama, Tutar, Tutar, Mama. <laughs> we get to keep making hillbilly elegy jokes for six more weeks. I do think we're going to have to, you know, find a lot of things to talk about in here for the remaining six weeks in this Oscar season somehow. By then we might all be vaccinated. Maybe the whole Oscar, all the nominees will get vaccines in their gift bags and then they'll just be able to have the Oscars in person. And we're going to watch the shorts, as we usually do. Um, I don't have a single opinion on the shorts. Although I did see Burrow, the uh, Disney one that's nominated an animated short film. It's very cute. Yeah, I haven't seen uh, any of these. So that'll be, uh, well, I say fun. But if history is <laughs> any indication, it will be hours of horror. But um, still worthy to watch. And I, if people can seek the shorts out, it's, it always adds an extra, I think, texture to... Um, Oscar season. Yeah, they're usually available on VOD. I'm certainly, certainly they will be this year. I'm going to plan to do some catch up. I I don't know that I'm going to watch everything since often that like, I don't know that I'm going to watch the one and only Ivan. Sorry, Ivan. I think he's a gorilla. Um, I am curious to see Greyhound because then I'll have seen all the best sound categories and it's like an 85 minute Tom Hanks movie. So why not? Mm-hmm. Um, do you guys have any catch up plans? I'm excited to see all the shorts. I need to check in on some of the documentaries. I usually am late to those. Um, you know, so I'm excited to, to check in on, on the nominees there. Oh, yeah. Wait, Richard, this is the second year in a row a movie you have championed got nominated in international feature and documentary. <laughs> the collective nice. has, uh, has pulled a Honeyland. Oh, I'm the only person in both those branches. So that's, <laughs> that's what's happening. I, I guess I should have disclosed that years ago. I think but. the bees in Honeyland vote too now. <laughs> yeah, no, Collective is such a is such a a great victory for that movie, and it's the first time a Romanian film, I believe, has been in documentary. Or it's not possible that it, it's not the first movie Romanian film to be in foreign language, but or international that, yeah. feature. But um, but yeah, I think that Collective is such an urgent and beautifully constructed movie. I think sometimes when we're talking about documentary, it can be hard because you're like, well, is it about the subject that's so interesting or is the filmmaking interesting? And I guess you could look at something like collective and say, well, they just had all this access and, and, and it just, this incredible story unfolded around them while the cameras were there. But like, there also is a real technique into how that's all put together and layered, you know, into each other. So uh, yeah, I'm really glad that that movie, which is a really difficult sit, registered with enough of you know members in two different branches of this uh esteemed body yeah it's it's so great i was excited to see it on there i gotta watch the white tiger which i think was a surprise in the adapted screenplay category although i had been hearing good things about it so it's, it's really on me that i hadn't watched it yet yeah the white tiger is really worth watching i kind of thought it might appear elsewhere uh, also, um, mm-hmm. you know, if there maybe there was going to be a sort of strange outlier Best Picture nominee, and that could be it because it's really solidly done. Um, I think the WGA nomination for Remy yes, Brownie that's what was, it was. was indicative, certainly that that it would get the screenplay nomination it did here, which was nice because Priyanka Chopra Jonas was the one who got to uh, be there when it was announced. And yeah, I, I think that that movie is definitely one if it's if it's in anyone's blind spot territory, uh, seek it out because it's readily available on Netflix and it's really entertaining. Can I talk about my beloved sound category? <laughs> yeah. So Sound of Metal, which is the film that I'm championing in this category, is nominated. But what's really interesting is the one that like most people who are in the business of predicting awards, their number one prediction was Tenet. And Tenet, though it got some other technical nominations, did not get in the sound category. And I don't know. I just think that's 
interesting, um, especially when there's so much sound in Tenet. And maybe that's what, uh, you know, turns some people off. But um, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that. I thought yeah. Tenet would have been a great sound nominee. Just like the whole sound of the turnstile and all this made up stuff and what that sound, what, like what the travel sounds like when they're going backwards. Like, I, I was surprised it wasn't in there. I would have liked it. There were a lot of complaints, though, about the sound mix, though. Sure. You know? Well, that's that's a classic Nolan thing where you can't hear anybody saying. Yeah. It's not, I don't think it's like, you know, they're probably definitely not not true rumors about Michael Mann, that he was losing his hearing. And that's why the sound mix in this movie is just so strange. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, t- I guess the, t- the pincer campaign for Tenet didn't really, <laughs> didn't really work. Uh, I do like that Mank made it in there, though, um, because the sound of that movie is so fascinating, the way they made it sound like it was made on a, on a soundstage in the 40s. And I had kind of forgotten about that, but I was happy to see it pop up for that. The sound people know what they're doing far more than I do. And also Soul. What do we make of Soul being in Best Sound? I don't, I, I, uh, I guess it's just really good. Trent Reznor. Yeah. I mean, they are in like a real, you know, they're in a real New York setting for much of the movie. I, this is probably something we should figure out for future episodes because I would love to know the answer. Also, I mean, visual effects, which is always kind of a, a realm of of funny at movies that wouldn't normally be nominated for Oscars. You know, so you have your big action spectaculars, The Midnight Sky. That's an interesting one. I kind of thought that would get in for score um, as well for Alexander Desplat's score for that movie. But like Love and Monsters, that's really interesting. <laughs> and that is one where I'm like, this is that is a testament to not a lot of big movies coming out in 2020. Yeah, I think that is the only nominee, like feature nominee that I was like, I didn't know that was a movie. I had never heard of that movie before. And it's the first Dylan O'Brien movie nominated for an Oscar after, of course, Scorch Trials won. Best <laughs> right, 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 right. The poster is like, you know, like all these like major characters stacked on top of each other. And Dylan O'Brien is the big one. And then the second biggest is a dog. I guess the dog is the second lead. Big part of that movie. <laughs> have you seen it? I have. Yeah, it's oh, OK. Yeah, I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure that um, Teen Wolf season one, like just didn't make the qualifications for the Oscars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it had a one-week qualifying run instead of the two that it needed. <laughs> right, um, right. All right, well, we can probably wrap up our nominations reactions. We'll be back next week um, to oh, keep talking about the Oscars, probably, um, or the Snyder Cut. That'll be when, um, that'll fill our next six weeks of stuff. Do you guys feel like it's going to be a slog to get to the Oscars, or like now that we know who's nominated, at least we can kind of get through it? Well, it's always a little bit of a slot because you're just like, okay, let's. I'm sick of talking about these movies. Yeah. But let's be honest, an additional slog because I don't get to go to any fun parties or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I, you know, can I talk about something really quickly? A bunch of people were asking me on Twitter this morning why uh, Judas and the Black Messiah went off HBO Max today. Great and question. The, uh, and the reason is is because uh, I mean I don't I don't know. Uh, we, we can discuss if this is a great move, but um, it, it was only ever going to be up on the platform for a month. That's sort of their theatrical release window thing that they're doing. That's what they did with Wonder Woman. That's what they'll be doing with um, Katie and my most anticipated movie in the Heights, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's going to be, it's going to be one month on HBO plus, uh, HBO, Ma- HBO plus, HBO <laughs> max. Then it goes away and it goes on like, you know, you can rent it, you can buy it on DVD, blah, blah. And then it'll be back on HBO uh, max. Uh, later so uh you know it's a little theatrical window that they're doing on on the platform and uh so that means when these other warner brothers films drop 
Uh, you're going to want to wa- make sure you watch them at least, you know, at least in the first month. Um, and, uh, and so what does that mean? Why did they choose to release it when they released it? When, if they were doing their math, they would know that it would be pulled on, you know, the no- nomination day. I don't, I don't know what to tell you about that. I mean, now that there are people getting vaccinated widely, like maybe it's box office numbers will be boosted. I don't know. Like if I had if I were fully vaccinated and I wanted to see Judas and the Black Messiah, I'd probably go to a movie theater. Yeah. Sure. Well, the same audience that went that gave 13 million dollars to Tom and Jerry will probably go <laughs> watch that one too. No, it's the people who clicked on Tom and Jerry on HBO Max and got the Snyder cut instead. Those are the uh those are the eyeballs mm. you're really looking for. And then I and and I guess I just want to talk about screenplay a little bit more yeah, because please. I mean, I know we just talked about it with like The White Tiger and stuff like that, but I confess I don't really know what we feel like the front runners are in these categories where where what are you feeling i mean i it's weird to bring up best actress as soon as you ask that question but i think that original screenplay depends on how carrie mulligan does because i think there's a spot to reward promising young woman and it's in one or the other and if carrie mulligan wins the sag and it kind of starts looking like she's set up for this which is not a guarantee like it could be Frances mcdormand and that will just happen um but you see what i mean like I think Emerald Fennell is a no, great I contender. Do. I think Carrie Mulligan's a great contender, but I wouldn't I wouldn't count on both it winning both, but maybe it will. Otherwise, I think it's Aaron Sorkin for Chicago 7. Yeah, they're going to hand that thing to Sorkin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then, Richard's been around too long to be fooled by anything else. <laughs> and then adapted screenplay? I guess it's Nomadland. Okay. Screenplays are usually the categories that I get most excited by. That's where you see a lot of like really fun stuff like Taika, Jordan Peele, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, um you know, I'll be interested. I think Emerald Fennell is the Taika and Jordan Peele of this year. You know I what agree. I mean? Like the big exciting new voice who you want to hand an award to. Yeah, I agree. But but I hear what you're saying. If if Carrie is is the narrative there, then uh, it might be Sorkin time. I don't know. Richard, do you have a bet in adapted screenplay? <sighs> That's a really tricky one to call. Um, the father I, I think, popped up in there again. Yeah. Um, I, I guess it depends on how familiar voters are with Nomadland because it is technically, yes, based on a book, mm-hmm. but it's so much more made out of Chloe Zhao's like own and Francis McDormand's own like research and, and time spent in these communities. So, and the book is as well, but it, they're, they were done separately, you know? So I don't know that, that, that could be tricky. Whereas the father is a really uncanny adaptation of a, of a tricky play into a tricky movie. But I, I really, yeah, that's that's a tough one to call. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to throw you guys one last question and then wrap it up. I would say pretty confidently right now that Nomadland will win Best Picture. Do either of you yeah. feel a similar level of confidence? Yeah, I do. I don't know about like pretty confidently, but I would say confidently. With Minari and, and as the second place contender, right? Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I, I worry about... Trial of the Chicago Seven. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just imagine you like going to sleep with like images of Eddie Redmayne and Frank Langella <laughs> over here in your da- head, dan- literally dancing in my head. <laughs> it's gonna be like a Sorkin Chicago Seven Sasha Baron Cohen sweep. <laughs> I didn't hate that movie, by the way. I like it fine. It just feels like something that like. Once again, in a we've talked about this before, but in a year where there's so many many dynamic stories told by people of color to like award 
Trial of Chicago 7, which is like sort of about that, but mostly about white men, is like, sure. that'd be a real move, you know? So, I mean, um, if, if it wins the SAG Ensemble, again, SAGs are on April 4th. Uh, Nomadland is not nominated for understandable reasons. Um, Minari and Trial of Chicago 7, I think, would be the two to watch there. Um, if Chicago 7 wins at SAG, then we'll be having a different conversation. I was sort of hoping Defy Bloods would win the SAG because then Delroy Lindo could have his SAG hey, award at least. Justice so, for Delroy. Yeah. Maybe that campaign yeah. uh, gets it over the top. I kind of think Promising a Woman could win because, yeah, yeah. because I, I think that like, if you look at like Argo winning, Birdman winning, even Spotlight to some extent or The Shape of Water, like kind of entertaining, still touching on issues, certainly Promising Woman is, but like not quite as like vegetables mm-hmm. as other movies that are mm-hmm. all, that were also nominated in those years. Yeah. Um, there feels like there's a precedent, especially now when like everyone's like stuck at home and they're not being feted at parties and schmoozed and all that stuff. They might just be like, I liked the movie that was entertaining and not the movie that felt like I was being sort of lectured, lectured to. to, you know, mm-hmm. even if that lecture mm-hmm. is well delivered and interesting. Mm-hmm. But I would say yeah. that's an argument for Minari, too, because it's, it's not entertaining in the same way as Promising Young Woman, but it's so heartfelt. Like it's a it's an emotional journey that you go on with it. And that could also drive some votes. Yeah, I mean it's less flashy filmmaking though, so I, yeah, it's all it's all. Who the hell knows what anyone's thinking this year? <laughs> um, all right. Well, again, we'll be talking about this plenty. Um, we would love to continue answering your questions as you want to send them. Um, you can go to vf.com and see uh, the list of Oscar nominees and lots of reactions to it, and Richard's review of the Snyder Cut, which I don't know, Richard, you seem to like it a little bit more than I expected. Yeah, I felt strange emotions at the end of it, because partly because it was just I was exhausted and it was four hours long and whatever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, check out the review and decide if you want to uh, invest the same time that I did. We're all in interesting emotional places these days, so all bets are off. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, where you can also tweet questions at us at Little Gold Men. You can follow us on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna. At congratulations, Oscar nominee Paul Racy. <laughs> <laughs> Sound of Metal Hive, Rise Up, uh, and Richard. Mama and me. <laughs> uh, this episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for how we'll all feel when the Oscars are handed out in late April goes to Richard Lawson. Okay, here you go. Okay.